We'll be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 5, which we looked at last week, begins in verse 1 saying, When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Rabbis in the days of Jesus had two very definite ways of teaching or preaching. When they were standing up, that was declaration. When they were standing up, that was preaching. When they were sitting down, it was teaching. More often than not, when the rabbi wanted to just gather in his disciples close to him and give a word of teaching, of understanding, of training, he would go somewhere and just sit down and they would gather to him and he would begin to teach. That's what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have called it the Declaration of Independence, Jesus' Declaration of Independence. But as much as it's a declaration, you've got to grasp the sense of what's going on here. He goes up on the mountain and he sits down, which says, I'm going to talk now with my followers, with my disciples. I'm not going to preach against the establishment. I'm, not, I'm just going to talk with my followers. I have something for them. Now, marvelously, early on in Jesus' ministry, we're told that that was great crowds of people, masses who, who were scattered all around that hillside, there in the Galilee, to listen to Jesus. But the Sermon on the Mount was not a political speech which I'm sure we're all getting a little tired of these days. Reminds me of when I was a kid and Watergate was going on, and all I wanted to do was watch Bugs Bunny, but I could not find it on a single channel. Sermon on the Mount was not a political speech delivered from a grand stage with a massive projection screen behind Jesus and a teleprompter in front. There were no impressive diplomats present, no party leaders, no special guests, and certainly no seats of honor. As we've talked about, you know where this took place. The seating arrangement was a rural hillside. The setting, looking down behind Jesus on the sparkling blue Canaris, the Sea of Galilee, and the speaker, a meek and humble rabbi from Nazareth. But the Sermon on the Mount, though taught to disciples, was spoken with the authority of the king. We see at the end of it, chapter 7 ends up with these words. He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Because the Sermon on the Mount wasn't an interpretation of the law like most rabbis would give. It wasn't a, a commentary on the commandments. Jesus the King was seated there declaring the independence of the citizenry of the kingdom of God. He begins, as we saw on Sunday, with the Beatitudes, the blessings. He goes through those, those eight characteristics of, of the follower of Jesus. Remember when we talked about Sunday, they are not eight different types of disciples. Like that guy is the meat guy. And this guy over here, he's, he's the hunger and thirst after righteousness guy. This is a description of every disciple. And depending on where we are in our lives, you're going to fall somewhere along that, that journey. And you may go back to the beginning of the journey. You may be called back to being poor in spirit yet again, depending on where you are in life and what God is doing. After he discusses this this life altered supernaturally by the disposition of the Holy Spirit, he then calls his disciples by that nature to be salt and light in the world. Which is not something that we can achieve ourselves. It's just by living in Christ that we become salty. (laughs) That we become light. That we become effective in this world. Jesus then goes on to reveal the spirit of the law as truly received in the heart. Murder, he says, is not the issue. Anger is. Adultery. It's not the issue. Lust is. 
It's not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Jesus covers all these things and He begins to point out what you're missing, disciples, what you don't understand is the perfection of the law is found in the heart. It's in how we receive the spirit of who God is and what He truly wants for us. It's not in keeping regulation. He goes all the way to the extreme of saying, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Which is one of the most difficult things to do even today when you think about those who you would consider maybe not enemies. Maybe you're too, you know, you're too righteous a person really to have enemies. But there's got to be someone who bugs you. Someone who's rubbing you the wrong way. As John looks at his son. Pray for them. It is counter nature. Counter-natural for me to pray for people i got a problem with. And then Jesus has the audacity at the end of chapter 5, verse 48, to say, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What? You are to be perfect? Absolutely. But remember, it's only by the supernatural work of the Spirit that we, His disciples, become characterized by these things. That someone actually could look at you, could look at me, and find something in the Sermon on the Mount and say, wow, you know, I, I see that in Scott. I don't know why, but I do. There, there, there's that move of perfection. I, I, I'm, I'm seeing that. This is what the Spirit does. Well, we've had a few days break to ponder since our last discussion at the end of chapter 5. Let's rejoin the crowds of would-be disciples. As, not would-be disciples, would-be. We're would-be disciples here. As they gather around Jesus at His feet and He continues to call for this counter-natural, counter-cultural, kingdom-oriented revolution. Verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Take care now. Watch how you behave in your own acts of self-righteousness. Don't do it to impress. He's going to come back to this theme throughout chapter 6 tonight. It is not about impressing people. Your acts of righteousness are because the Spirit is at work in you and you're doing what God has called you to do, not because you're hoping someone else in the fellowship is going to notice how good you've really become. How righteous you truly are. Now, something interesting to note in this very first verse, nine times throughout this uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to use use the phrase reward. Chapter 5, verses 12 and 46. Chapter 6, verses 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 16, and 18. If you write those down quickly, you can get them. Or just look at it. He uses the term reward again and again. So I went and looked it up. It's the Greek word misthos. Misphos. The Hebrew equivalent is sakar. Both words mean the same thing. The reward here that Jesus is talking about, and don't miss this, are wages due to a laborer for his work. Listen to what he said. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. No wages, as it were. However, if you are living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, the clear indication is you will have misthos. You'll receive wages. Now, this unsettled me a bit, because this is not typical Christian talk. We don't like to talk about getting our wages. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You're going to get a benefit for the acts of righteousness that you accomplish, so long as they're not to be noticed by men. Otherwise, you're already getting your pay right there. Luke chapter 10, verse 7 says, The laborer is worthy 
of his wages. 1 Timothy 5.18 For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. It's that same word, misthos, worthy of his wages, worthy of his reward. Now, in general, you need to understand the Greek mindset did not accept the concept of a reward outside of industry and commerce. In other words, you didn't get something for free. This whole new concept of grace that Paul talks so much about in his letters, he had to talk a lot about because the Greeks didn't get it. Grace didn't make sense. Why would a God just give me stuff? After all, the whole pantheon of the Greek gods expected things. Oh, they might give you something, but you had to do something in return. No, not our God, Paul says again and again. He gives grace. He gives freely. But the Greek mind had trouble with that. To get it, you had to work for it. And so this Greek word mythos, that's what it means and what it would have meant to a Greek listener, payment for services rendered. You do your job, you get your pay. Now again, this might rattle the Christian concept of grace a little bit. And the whole faith versus works debate and argument that still goes on to this day. The work side seems to be getting a little bump here. Cool, so we do have to work for our wages. So we do have to earn some aspect of our salvation, right? Is that what Jesus is saying? Absolutely not. Because as you may recall, the Sermon on the Mount is not the Gospel, and He is not talking about earning your salvation here. In fact, nothing Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount is about gaining our salvation. We already have that by the time we get here. By the time we begin to live out the concepts and principles that the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowers us to live out, we're already a saved people. So we can set that complete argument aside. He's talking about, though, rewards for services rendered. You you already have heaven, you already have salvation, and now he's saying that there are also rewards. Really? There are rewards beyond my salvation? More than my salvation? Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Good, so that's my salvation. But, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, you're already saved. But you still have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, if I'm saved, why am I being judged? Listen, he says so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Still not talking about your salvation. He's talking about your rewards. There are real rewards in the coming kingdom based on what we do and how we serve in and for that kingdom. How you live your life in Christ now will merit different types of rewards then. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But the Bible is clear about it. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13. Paul says, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. In other words, by the seat of his pants. What Paul is talking about here is just amazing to me because, again, these are saved people. Whether the works are good or bad, he's talking to a saved person. But the saved person who builds on the kingdom, who focuses on the kingdom, will receive rewards for that building. And the saved person who doesn't, whose works are flimsy at best, those works are going to fry. He himself will still be saved. 
But the rewards are apparent. There's going to be a reckoning, an accounting for the citizens of the kingdom that is completely separate from the judgment. That is, of those who would not go to heaven but would be sent to hell. It's probably going to happen, I'm guessing, immediately following the rapture. There will at that time be rewards given. Bible students, you may remember, by the way, that the judgment seat of Christ that Paul talks about, that we must appear before, that phrase, judgment seat, is in the Greek, the bema seat, which is a very specific type of seat. It's, a, it's a, like a two- or three-tiered platform. And at the top of this platform, judges would sit in athletic games to judge the competition. And when the competition was over, the winners would walk up the platform to receive their reward. That's the kind of judgment seat we're talking about that will approach Christ on and at. And he even says in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward, Mythos, my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. The question is, am I working to receive my reward from Jesus or am I working to receive a reward from men? And Paul says very clearly, Galatians 1.10, Am I now trying to seek the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus tonight begins saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He is speaking to and about kingdom disciples saying we have a choice. We can choose either the notoriety and applause right now or we can work toward and wait for His reward then. My encouragement to you, and I believe this is what Jesus is saying, is work toward the reward. Work toward the reward. Now, we of the Grace Camp need to learn that works are not a bad thing. I spent years and years in, in, in the battle you know, between faith versus works, and which one is it that gets you into heaven, and having those arguments. And sometimes we spend so much time there that we get to the place where we think that works are bad. No, I'm not going to do any works. I've heard of people who say, I will not get baptized because it's a work. We get to a, a wrong place when we assume that works are a bad thing. Granted, our works do not save us, but our works are a good thing in the Lord. Now you might say, yeah, well I feel a little weird working for a reward. I mean, shouldn't I just do it out of the goodness of my heart? Well, if you had any goodness in your heart, I'd say that'd be great. (laughs) The reality is we don't. But we don't want to deny our Father the joy, the blessing of giving rewards to His children. Parents, how do you feel when you give your kids something for a job well done? I like doing that. And I have a sense that our Heavenly Father does too. But notice one other thing about this verse. Did you catch the wording? Jesus doesn't say you have no reward from your Father. He said, if you practice your righteousness before men, you have no reward with your Father. Which the indication tells me that the reward is not necessarily even something He gives as much as Himself. Our greatest reward is being with the Father. Is being in His presence. He even says as much to Abraham, Genesis 15.1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Don't be looking for something else because the reward you get is standing right here before you. Now, Jesus is going to go on in the rest of this chapter as we read through to give three practical examples as to how a disciple goes about living these kingdom principles to receive 
the type of reward that the Lord would want to give. Remember, these are illustrations here of a spiritual disposition. They are not laws. They are not rules. They are a, a way in which a disciple should and will act if the Spirit of God is allowed to be at work in our lives. Number one, you might want to jot these down if you have a pencil and you take notes. Number one, the motivation of giving. The motivation of giving. Verse two. When you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This amazed me. You know historically that the Pharisees would blow the shofar. They would come into the town square and they would take out a shofar and blow it to attract attention, specifically to attract all those who were poor and indigent around so that they could give them good gifts. What Jesus is describing here seems ridiculous to me, but the Pharisees literally tooted their own horns. They literally got out there and blew the shofar in a big public way. Gifts for the poor, alms for the poor, I'm going to give now to the poor. And they'd blow the horn and out the poor would come. And Mr. Pharisee man would begin giving alms with everybody watching. Oh, what a righteous dude. That guy is holy. He is so set apart. He is so spiritual. And Jesus just blows it right off the map. He says, gang, citizens of the kingdom don't blow your own horn. You don't attract attention when you are giving. Regardless of how you're giving or to whom you're giving, it's not about showing people that you are giving. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Keep it secret. God knows. He's watching. Jesus, again, takes us right into the depths of the law, which is really into the recesses of the heart where our motives and our intentions are revealed. That was hard for the Pharisees because they were all external. They were trying to live by the law to make it look like everything they were doing on the outside was good. Jesus would later say, you may recall, that they were whitewashed tombs. Beautiful, sleek on the outside, rotting and stinking on the inside. By the way, if you want a a quick measure on your spiritual maturity and growth, if you want to measure the depth of your faith, look at how, what, and to whom you give. And I say that not knowing what anybody here gives. But if you want to test the measure of your faith, ask it, sit down and look at what you have coming in and look at the percentage of what is going out. That will tell you something about your faith. Whatever you give to a church, a missions organization, a person in your neighborhood, and that is truly between you and the Lord, between a disciple and his or her God, and Jesus says, keep it that way, don't give. Don't give to be seen for your giving. Second Chronicles 16.9 tells us, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. And so Jesus is scratching in an interesting place. He's saying, what is your motive? If you're going to give, what are your intentions? Why are you doing this? What's your purpose? Second Corinthians 9.7, Paul said, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now hold that thought on giving, because Jesus is going to come back to it. But he starts with the motivation of giving. What is your motive? What's your intention in your giving? Secondly, 
the method of prayer. The method of prayer. And Jesus camps out here for a few minutes. He says in verse 5, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Remember those who gave to the poor wanted to be honored by men. Well, now these who, who pray, they want to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus makes some great contrasts about prayer here that are worth considering. A couple of things to note under this whole idea of the method of prayer that Jesus calls us to. First of all, He calls us to reality over formality. Reality over formality. Religious language versus a right heart versus where our hearts truly are. Let me ask you this. How many of you have slipped into formal praying to be heard by men? Anyone? You ever been in a group of people and you're called on to pray and you begin to look for or think about the right phrases? Or how many of you, let me ask this question, how many of you refuse to pray in public because of how you will be seen by men? That one's even more difficult. There are many of us who say, I'm not going to pray out loud because I don't have the phrases. I don't have the verses that, that pop into my mind. I don't have it down, so I've I got to keep it to myself. And Jesus would say, well, that's cool because that's how I want you to pray in the first place. Only I want you to pray. But it isn't about your formality. It's about the reality. And the reality is who I am as I pray. The reality is no matter what comes out of my mouth, I'm still who I am and God knows that. So no matter how formal or verbose or religious I sound, it's still me. And where someone else might look at me and go, wow, Rick's really religious, God looks at me and and says, you know what, you're not going to be heard for your many words. You may impress someone else you're not impressing me because I know what's going on on the inside right now. The more formal and pious I am when I pray, and I'm talking about praying in front of other people, the more I fool others and the more I fool myself into thinking I'm something more than what I really am. That's the reality. Who I really am. In Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt, Luke writes. And Jesus said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Reality versus formality. The reality of who I really am diffuses the formality of phony prayer. I hope I'm getting that across, but I think before we begin to pray out loud, God would say, remember who you are, and just pray naturally. Don't pray formally. A second thing to know here in the method of prayer is simplicity over monotony. Verse 7. Jesus says, When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We need to, we need to understand this. Kind of work this out a bit. 
And I'm going to say something that, that may shock you at first, but give it a moment. Prayer has no intrinsic value. In and of itself, it's just words. Prayer in and of itself is no different than talking to, to anybody. It's just words. The power is never in the prayer. The power is in the one to whom we are praying. That's where the power is. And that's where we fool ourselves. And that's why we use many words. Because we begin to think that there's some kind of inherent greatness. The more powerful a man of prayer I am, and the words I'm choosing, and the formality I'm choosing, and the big-mindedness, wow, there's power in this. No, there's not. They're just words. They may be big words, they may be impressive words, they're still just words. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Baptism. There is nothing intrinsically powerful about baptism except what the Holy Spirit does. The baptism itself, we go out of the pond right now, it's water. And it's not clean water. (laughs) You could be baptized in a hot tub, you could be baptized at the beach. The water is of no... Value in and of itself is just water. However, it becomes an incredibly valuable thing because of what God does when we go in. Same with prayer. The words don't matter. The heart matters. And the power is what happens as God takes what we pray. even goes beyond what we pray. I I think about Hezekiah. Remember, we just studied Hezekiah just several weeks back when we were in 2 Kings. And Hezekiah had a guy come at him, a big-mouthed emissary of Assyria, a guy by the name of Rabshikeh. Rabshikeh in 2 Kings 18 and 19. And we're told that Rabshikeh goes off for those two chapters, just talking about big words, big challenges, big threats from Assyria, about how they were going to come in and just wipe Israel out. Hezekiah's response, let me read this to you, verse 14 of 2 Kings 19 says, Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but were the works of men's hands, wood and stone. But they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And this is not a wordy prayer. In fact, it takes about 37 seconds and he's done. He didn't go on and on repetitiously, repetitiously saying the same phrase again and again in great monotony. That is what Jesus says the pagans do. That's a heathen's way of praying. Thinking that the longer I pray, the more heard I will be. The more I repeat certain phrases again and again. Gang, it's not monotony. It's not complexity. It's not verbosity that brings our prayers before the Lord. It's humility and simplicity. And when you read Hezekiah's prayer in 2 Kings 19, you hear a man whose focus is 100% on the Lord and not on himself. He keeps saying again and again, and, and Hayden, by the way, son, let me throw this out to you, if he's, oh, he's not listening. I have a verse for you. 
Hayden called me this morning. He and Cheryl were on the way to school. And he called me up and he had his Bible with him. He said, Dad, I need some verses where God says I'm the only God. Because i got some friends at school who are trying to say otherwise. So I need some verses, which I thought was really cool. So we, we went to Isaiah, Isaiah 42 and 43 and 46. And by the way, that whole section, just remember Isaiah 40, because throughout the Isaiah 40s, God refutes even the existence of any other gods. So here's a verse for you. Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19, 14-19, write that down. You can use that with your friends. He says over and over and over, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. There is no other God. You know what I sense that Hezekiah is doing here, by the way? As he prays, his faith is increasing. He's reminding himself, there's no other God. Sennacherib of Assyria, all of his gods? What can he really do? I mean, he truly doesn't have the power. You alone have the power. And as Hezekiah is praying in that simple de- declaration of, of the reality of God, his faith increases. It gets greater. And God hears him because he's focused on the Lord. He's not focused on his own prayer. That's how a citizen of the kingdom prays. Simply and humbly focused on the Lord, not focused on the words. The prophet Malachi warned this in Malachi 3.7, Don't weary God with your words. (laughs) I really wonder sometimes if there there aren't days where I'm praying and I'm just going on and on, and God's just going... (sighs) Okay, get get done with it, Rick. I know what you're saying. I know what's on your mind. I know what's on your heart. You don't have to be verbose. Well, Jesus continues now by giving a great model for a disciple's prayer. Verse 9, he says, Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, this part of the Sermon on the Mount is traditionally called what? The Lord's Prayer. And throughout Christianity, regardless of what church fellowship you go to, that's what we call this thing the Lord's Prayer. But it can't be. Because this is not a prayer that Jesus can pray. What are you talking about? Look at verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Jesus didn't need forgiveness. He was the sinless one. He was perfect. This is not the Lord's prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. This is a prayer Jesus gives His disciples. He said, let me give you a model, a method, a a picture of how to pray, an illustration. And you can take this and run with it and and add to it and and just kind of pray through this. And we're going to talk more about this as we, as we get, uh, well, next, next Sunday or maybe the Sunday after next. But you want to really hear the Lord's Prayer, go to John 17. That's the Lord's Prayer. Where it's the entire chapter, 26 verses, Jesus praying. It's the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus in the Bible. And in it, Jesus is praying. He to the Father, listening to the Father, uh, intimate with the Father. But even that prayer in John 17, is just one of many including a single one-line prayer that Jesus prayed that changed the course of history, Luke 23, 34, when He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not much verbosity in that prayer. Not a lot of religious lingo in that prayer. Just, God, they don't have a clue 
who I am, what they're doing. They, just, they don't even know. Forgive them. Forgive them. What we have traditionally called the Lord's Prayer is better termed the Disciples' Prayer. But even so, and listen to this, it's not a liturgy of monotony. One of the greatest tragedies, and it's ironic in church history, is that this prayer, just after Jesus says, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, and then He gives us a model of a prayer, an idea of how to pray, and what do we do? We do it in a meaningless repetition. That's the exact same thing Jesus said, don't do this. The Lord's Prayer is not to be a prayer by rote that is talked back and forth in a congregation again and again, week after week, as part of a liturgy where it gets dry and, and empty. It's so funny what we do as humans. The disciples' prayer. Jesus says, don't pray with vain repetition. Don't toss in a few Hail Marys and Our Fathers. Because that's all you're doing. You're just repeating something as if these words... And and, and listen to me, I'm not being blasphemous here. But even these words that Jesus chose, the words in and of themselves are not the power. This prayer is not the power that will somehow unlock the key to time with, with God. To a deeper relationship with God. Well, I've said the Lord's Prayer every Sunday all my entire life growing up. How come I'm not closer to God? Because it's not about the words in this prayer. Because for Jesus, prayer was never about words. It's always about relationship. It's always about spending time with God. In fact, a lot of times the the words themselves are completely irrelevant to the time spent in the presence of the Lord. It's funny because when I get all religious and begin to reiterate prayers like this, assuming that my words or my penance does something, what it really tends to do is distance me from God. I need to say a few more Hail Marys and, and I, I start to become more and more distant from God rather than drawing closer to Him, which is what He wants. Why He calls us to pray. Luke narrows, by the way, the whole disciples' prayer here. He narrows it down to just three verses. And did you know that outside of that, the apostles never pray this prayer once in the book of Acts. You will not hear it mentioned or listed a single time in all of the epistles. Paul's, Peter's, Jude's, James, John's, none of them even refer to or mention what we call the Lord's Prayer, what we held up to such a high standard. And don't misunderstand me. It is a wonderful model of how to approach the Lord in prayer. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Greater than all the words of this prayer combined is the fact, gang, and don't miss this, the fact that we have both the Spirit of Christ within us and... Jesus Christ without interceding for us. That's where the power is. We are not solely dependent on the strength of our praying, on our prayer ability. So those of you who don't think you're the greatest prayers in the world, good news, you don't have to be. Because if you have the Spirit of Christ within you and Jesus interceding without, you have all the power you're going to need. Romans 8.26, the Spirit also helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Hebrews 7.24 Jesus, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently, and therefore He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So what are you saying, right? You're saying we should just leave all the praying up to Jesus? No. We are called to be a people who are constant in prayer. But prayer is not religion. And prayer is not liturgy. 
Prayer is a relationship with our Father. One last thing about this, it's far less about commanding impressive results and far more about a relationship than we often realize. You know, when we ascribe power to the spoken word, when we, we stand in a fellowship of other believers and begin to use that big worded religiosity, you know what it, it does to a new believer, to a new Christian, a young disciple? It makes them not want to pray. Because, and many of you have been there, and I myself have been as well, because you think, I can't pray like that. I, I don't have that kind of depth of understanding. I can't do it. Can we fix something right here tonight? Understand the Lord says, I just want you to come to me. You don't have to do it in front of everybody. Go home, close your bedroom door, get down on your knees, and let's have a conversation. No one else even needs to hear. And for those of us, and I count myself as one of these, who can tend to be verbose in your prayers, stop thinking so highly of your own words. That's why Jesus says pray in secret. Don't pray to impress. Well, there's a third illustration. The motivation of giving, he talked about the method of prayer. This is all heart level stuff. And number three, the makeup of fasting. The makeup of fasting. Verse 16. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Jesus is pointing out something that is a reality in that society. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head. Wash your face. Use deodorant, I might add. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, there's, a, there's another word Jesus has used throughout in this teaching tonight. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. The Greek word is hypocritus, which is very close to our word hypocrite. Do you know what it means literally? A mask wearer. An actor. Someone who puts on a mask. And Jesus is going through here in the Sermon on the Mount, He is systematically removing the mask of pretense. Going right in surgically to the heart of the disciple. He's taken on our giving. He's taken on our prayer. And now He's going after a disciple's approach to fasting. One of the highest and most holy things, we think sometimes, that a servant of God does. Most people in churches don't fast. Those who do... They really have a relationship with God. Because for me to skip a meal, I mean, i got to love someone an awful lot to do that. <laughs> the Pharisees fasted every second and fifth day of the week. Our Monday and Thursday were fast days for the Pharisees. And I can guarantee you, those days were marked by scruffy, unkempt appearance. Baggy-eyed, woe-is-me, suffering-for-righteousness Pharisees. Walking through the streets of Jerusalem... Hang on, I just I gotta stop for a second because I'm fasting today. Okay, all right, we can move on. They just didn't look good, and, and they, they looked tired, and they, they struck, and everybody knew. Oh, that's right, that's right. Today's Thursday, fast day. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I don't want to bother you when you're when you're so holy and so righteous. And Jesus, once again, he nails it. But this is interesting to me. Jesus has gone after the mask wearers, but when it comes to fasting, he turns a corner and says, but when you fast, put on your best face. Ladies, when you fast, put on your makeup. 
do your hair. Guys, when you fast, don't let your whole face just hang there. Wash yourself. So that while the fast is going on, no one knows. Because the fast, again, is spiritual. And it's internal. And it's intimate between you and the Father. It's not something that you're supposed to bandy about and say, look at me, the righteous person. You might ask, well, why do we have to fast at all? (laughs) I prefer just bypassing the whole fasting thing. Let me give you three quick biblical reasons for fasting. Just to jot down and think about. Number one, fasting encourages physical rejection. I mean, at its heart, that really is what it is. You are saying no to the flesh. I am not going to feed, literally, I'm not going to feed the flesh today over the next couple of days. If you decide to go into a biblical fast, you're saying, I'm not going to feed the flesh. And every time that hunger pang comes, I'll be reminded of the difference between flesh and spirit. And I will be in the spirit. And I will go to the Father. It, It actually is an amazing and a wonderful reminder to be with the Lord. A fresh reminder every time your stomach goes, oh, we could use something down here. You go, oh, wait a minute, I'm fasting. That's right. Let me take a moment and pray. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, tells us on the 24th day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. So if you think I go along tonight, they did an entire fourth of the day while not having had anything to eat. It says then for another fourth of the day, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So fasting encourages a physical rejection because the natural man, we said this recently, the natural man dies hard. A natural man dies hard. Remember we talked about baptism and that picture of being baptized. Death to the natural man. The natural man doesn't want to die. He wants to fight for survival to live. But fasting rejects the natural in favor of the spiritual. Secondly, fasting provides a mental direction. It provides a mental direction. Physiologists have learned that when there's no food in the stomach, after a period of time, usually about 24 to 38 hours, or 48 hours, there ends up being greater blood flow to the brain. And suddenly, once you get over that initial difficulty of not eating, of being hungry, you think clearly. Very sharp. And your understanding and your discernment increases. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Book of Ezra. Ezra writes, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for us our little ones, and all our possessions. He says, I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy along the way because we had already said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So, we fasted, and we sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. Why were they fasting? Well, remember Nehemiah, they were fasting to reject the flesh. They were fasting in confession and humility before God. But Ezra here with the people, this was not a fast of rejecting the flesh. This was a fast of directing the mind to hear God. We're going to pray and ask the Lord to protect us and we're going to listen and see what He says. And Nehemiah tells us that God listened to their entreaty. So fasting curbs the appetite of the flesh, a physical rejection. It focuses the attention of the soul, a mental direction, 
But best of all, number three, fasting nurtures spiritual liberation. I want to read to you just for a moment from Isaiah chapter 58. Just listen to this. Isaiah 58 verse 3. God is responding to the people and He's saying, you say, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? And God says, behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is this a day which I choose, a, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? God says, no, no. He says, is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness. To undo the bands of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then God says, that kind of fast, when you're fasting in active righteousness, not self-righteousness, but when you're fasting in such a way that you're feeding and caring for and looking after the needs of others, He says, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. That's a spiritual liberation. Fasting has an impact on that. I don't know if you noticed, but the flesh, the soul, and the spirit, all three are impacted by fasting. Rejecting the flesh. And giving clarity to the soul, the mind. And especially liberating the spirit. Jesus takes on all these things back in the Sermon on the Mount. The spirit of the law, which has been lost to the people, Jesus Words can even become lost to us, gang. If we approach these things, giving, prayer, fasting, discipleship, if we approach them in the natural man, and so Jesus would say approach them spiritually. Well, He's shifting His followers. He's shifting you and I from that worldly perspective into the kingdom perspective. Watch what He does here, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm sure you've heard this passage before. But here on the hillside, note what Jesus is doing. People are sitting around, got their little sack lunches, the kids are playing, and Jesus continues on. And He is chipping away at pretense. And he's replacing our human tendencies with pictures of a true disciple's disposition, a spiritual disposition. And now, as this begins to really get into it, he doesn't slow down. In fact, next week he continues on even more than anything we've seen before. But here he is pushing forward into what I'm convinced is the single greatest stronghold against spiritual development, and that's money. It is the number one thing that keeps us from growing in the Lord. That stunts our spiritual discipleship. Money is the issue. John Corson in his commentary, I really like this, he said, giving is not God's way of raising cash. He said, giving is God's way of raising kids. Think about that. 
Why does the Lord call us to give it all? So that He can have money in the coffers? No. Because He knows that money for us is a stronghold against spiritual growth. Money is an issue that, man, we can't get over it or around it. It's there. And until we just leave it in His hands, it will always be a hindrance to our spiritual growth. But gang, this is more than just the issue of giving, which Jesus already covered. He now goes after the entire financial mentality of a true disciple. Listen to this, verse 22. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What does he mean here? What's that got to do with money and finance? Proverbs 15.30 tells us the light of the eyes rejoices the heart. And Jesus kind of pauses. He draws back. because You almost get the feeling he, he makes this statement about where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Sits back a little bit and people are going, what's he saying? Is he talking about our money again? Oh, I think he is. I thought he was done with the giving thing and now he's back on it. And he pauses and he looks around and he says, you know, the eye is the lamp of the body. Dry's good, you got light. Dry's bad, you got darkness. What's the point? The point is this if we, as the disciples and citizens of the coming kingdom, view all the things that he's saying with clear spiritual eyes, we get light. If we can even look at our cash flow and our bank accounts spiritually, then we see them in the right light. We have clear vision to understand what he is talking about. But if, if we don't, gang, if the eye is bad, there is only darkness. Jesus wants us to be free to view the real riches of the kingdom, which you can't find in a checkbook. The true riches of the kingdom. He wants our eyes to be clear so that we can see that. But if the eye is bad, again, there's only darkness. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe or of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That is Satan's ploy. To blind the unbelieving. And that's not the unbeliever. That's even a Christian who doesn't have the faith to believe that God truly can meet our needs. Satan will blind us. We'll have a blind spot in our financial realm. Jesus then goes on and says, look, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Again, I imagine a pause here where a bunch of the disciples go, oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, I can't have two masters. Just one. Jesus, you're my master. And then he says, you cannot serve God and wealth. Oh, man. It's back on the money thing again. He just won't let well enough alone. Why is Jesus talking about money? Because money is the seat of the natural man's control. That is the one place in our lives where we rest the most control. Where we are the most upset when it's out of our control. It is a hard area, spiritually, faith-wise. Let me ask you, are you anxious about the economy right now? Anybody here worried about your retirement, your 401k, what's it doing? How'd you feel a couple days ago when, the, when Wall Street took a 777-point drop in one day? 
For anyone who has been storing away a nest egg for retirement, to watch that thing going down is to watch your years of savings and all the effort that you put in for security to go away. What if America enters into a great recession? I don't know. Did they pass the bill tonight? The package? Well, that's unfortunate, but that's just my opinion. And I'm probably wrong. You're glad I'm not in the seat of finance in America. But what if we enter a great recession anyway? What if it doesn't work, which people are saying it may not? What if I lose everything I've saved? What if you do? Disciples, what if you do? What if tomorrow I can't pay my mortgage and I lose my house? What if I do? What if I go to take money out of the bank and my bank shuts down and that money's gone? What if it is? Can't serve God and wealth. Sure makes it a lot easier to serve God. There's no wealth. That's gone. So I guess I'll just serve God. This is intense because Jesus is going head to head with our finances. And he's saying, look, regardless of what you have tucked away, a citizen of the kingdom of God makes a practical choice to store up treasures in heaven and not in Wall Street. A citizen of the kingdom of God has open eyes to God's vision to serve Him as our Master and not to ever serve the illusion of financial security because that's what it is, an illusion. Verse 25, he lowers the boom. For this reason I say to you, and don't miss that, he says for this reason. Too often this next section has been taken all by itself. It's part of the big picture of what Jesus is saying. Kingdom disciples, kingdom citizens, this is how you live. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't they worth more? Aren't you worth more than they are? Let's get that right. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Jesus is talking about stress, which we, in this last generation, just started to figure out actually kills us. And he says, why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed themselves like one of these. I, I, I think if Solomon walked in here tonight and looked at the way we were dressed, he'd go, Cool. That's awesome. How come I don't have this stuff? How come I'm not dressed like that? You guys got great outfits on. Because we're the wealthiest nation ever in the history of the world. We walk in here casual on a Wednesday night and we are dressed to the nines compared to what most people in Jesus' day even had in their closet. It says Solomon in all his glory didn't clothe himself like one of these flowers. He says, verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then. Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? By the way, that's the trinity of worry right there. What will I eat? What will I drink? What will I wear? He says the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father, He knows you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
Now quickly, before we finish, three quick things to note that we need to understand. Three important truths about citizen kingdoms. They're kingdom citizens. Number one, kingdom citizens are not exempt from earning a living in the world. Mark that. Because you could read this and say, well, if I'm not supposed to worry about what I'm going to eat or wear or drink, I'm staying home tomorrow. <laughs> I'm quitting my job. I'm done working. No. Kingdom citizens are not exempt from earning a living in the world. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, if anyone's not willing to work, he is not to eat either. Strong words. Paul says, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. In other words, you need work. <laughs> we need something to do, because when we have nothing to do, we don't do good stuff. Now such persons, he says, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So kingdom citizens are not exempt from working. It's part of the deal. Secondly, kingdom citizens are not exempt from empathetic care for others. We're supposed to earn. We're also supposed to be empathetic. 2 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul says, As for you, brethren, do not weary of doing good. We have time and time again a commanded responsibility to each other. A commanded responsibility to care for the poor, for the indigent, for those who need help. Especially in the body of Christ, we have a commanded responsibility to look after each other and to see to each other's needs. We're not exempt from that. And number three... Kingdom citizens are not exempt from experiencing trouble. You see, I've had people say, well, I've read the Matthew 6 thing. Jesus says, don't be worried. But I'm losing my house. So how does that work? It's life. And citizens of the kingdom are not exempt from experiencing trouble. Jesus does not say we won't go through hard times. But He does say our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need and He will feed the need. He will clothe us. He will feed us. He will provide drink. He will take care of every need. He knows what we need. And the reality is you may be going through hard times, but if you are walking in faith, you are in the place that God is working in you and on you. Maybe you lose the job and God says, Hey, but stick with me. Watch how I take you through this. And when the next job is better and greater than anything you had in the old one, or when I answer this prayer and show you my glory, then you'll be able to step back and go, Wow, it wasn't me earning it anyway. It was you the whole time. You know your employer does not decide on your race? God does. Well, Lord, I could use a little more this year. (laughs) You're the one. Maybe I just need to go to you. Maybe we should. The Lord knows every one of our situations. He knows what's going on. And even if we experience trouble, God is still working out faith in us. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The Greek word for trouble is kakia. It sounds an awful lot like kia, the car I drive. I don't know if there's any connection there. Kakia means evil or malice. (laughs) Evil or malice. We will go through, we will face struggle with evil at times. Malice at times. But here's the big question that I leave you to consider for all these things tonight. Here's the deal. Do you take Jesus at His word or not? Do you believe Him for what He says? Read this again. 
Go home and just read those last few verses that we read where Jesus said, don't worry about your life. Where Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do you believe it? Or not? Do you accept that as truth or is it just nice flowery religious phraseology? If we don't believe Jesus on this point, we might as well close up our Bibles, turn in our passports, and give up our citizenship right now. If we don't believe that Jesus means what He says. You know what the real power is of studying through, of reading, of listening to the words of the Sermon on the Mount? Is Jesus is saying everything about how He wants us to live, about about meeting our needs. He's saying everything to give us complete confidence in Him. And all we have to do is accept it. All we have to do is say, okay, Jesus, I'm taking you at your word. There are times I have prayed, not in my own verbosity, but I have, I have prayed. Jesus, you said don't worry about what I should eat or what I should drink or what I should wear. Well, I'm worried. So I need you to help me not to worry. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm calling you on your promise. Today I'm going to seek the kingdom. And I'm going to let you worry about the other stuff. Today I'm going to seek the kingdom first. And I'm going to seek your righteousness. And you said, these are your words, Lord. You said all these things will be added to you. You said you'd take care of it. So I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to trust that you'll do what you said you would do. Jesus is calling His followers to seek one thing above everything else. And that's the kingdom. If our eye is clear and we are focused on the kingdom, He'll take care of the rest. Father, we take You at Your Word tonight. We believe You for Your promises. Lord, You have shown us time and time again from all history You showed us with Israel. You showed us with the prophets. You showed us with specific people you called out. You have shown us again and again, even in our own lives, Father, that you are sufficient to provide and care for every need. And so, Lord, what we ask for tonight is an increase of faith. That we would be people who are called who hear our calling to seek the kingdom first and foremost. Help us trust You for the kingdom, Father. In Jesus we pray. Amen.